The following sermon audio is from The Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about The Source can be found at www.sourcechurch.net. You know, this modern life is chock full of messages. Have you noticed that? So, I I think it's too many messages. Like constant electronic ads for products or for, you know, political causes. There's yards, yard signs and bumper stickers. There's people sending emails with different, um, you know, foundations that have messages for you, um, making phone calls, knocking on your door. There's constant billboards, right, to keep you from having a peaceful drive. But how do you know which messages out of this plethora that you experience every day, how do you know which messages are the really important ones that you have to listen to? Because some warnings, they might only warrant like a a mental note, right? Like, okay, duly noted, I'm moving on. Like, this product contains a chemical known in the state of California to cause cancer. Okay? If I'm ever in California, I'll keep that in mind. Some warnings, though, might warrant a complete alteration of your lifestyle. Like, someone tells you that the nuclear reactor near your house is suddenly unstable. So there's a spectrum. And have you ever stopped to think about which messages you need to listen to, which messages are worthy of your attention. Is it the need to eat organic or to protect the environment or to protect your civil liberties or to prepare financially for a recession or retirement? Today we're going to hear a warning that is far more urgent and far more life-altering than any of those messages. Our text this morning begins with the word therefore. And whenever you see a therefore, you need to go back and see what it's there for. And in this case, it's reminding us of all of chapter 1. All of chapter 1, where we saw presented in brilliant terms the supremacy of Jesus. Jesus over everything. Jesus over creation, over prophets, over all other authorities and intercessors. Any way you look at it, Jesus is better. And therefore... We end up at today's verses. Therefore leads us to the so what. How do our lives need to change because Jesus is better? And this is what we hear next. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. And we'll talk a lot today about drifting. The Greek word used there is actually a nautical term. Think about what happens when a boat stops proactively moving in a certain direction. Well, it drifts. It drifts with the prevailing currents. And this is a great metaphor for the Christian life because you don't have to be doing anything in order to drift. You just have to neglect doing something. And then you can end up far, far off course without even noticing it. So first we'll talk about the possibility of drift, and then we'll ask, well, what makes that drift dangerous? And then we'll examine some evidence for that danger, to prove that that danger is real. And then we'll end with the remedy. How do we respond to this danger so as to ensure that we won't drift from the way of salvation? Let's start with the possibility of drift. What exactly do we mean when we say that we could drift away? What does that mean? Well, many Christians who start the voyage, many who start the Christian voyage, don't make it safely into the destination harbor. 
Many who start the Christian voyage don't make it safely into the destination harbor. And I know that immediately some of you are asking, wait a minute, wait a minute. Is he saying that we can lose our salvation? That we can be Christians and then suddenly not be Christians anymore? No, I am not saying that. The Bible teaches in many places the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. So those who are truly saved by grace through faith will be kept by God all the way to glory. What I am saying, though, is that many who call themselves Christians, who do the church thing for a while, maybe for their whole lives, maybe who were baptized, who were truly convinced themselves that they were Christians, many will drift away from the narrow course that leads to salvation. The faith that is real perseveres. And this can be hard to get our minds around. It can, like, if I, if I can feel so good about being a Christian, but then could end up actually not a real one, how can I have any sense of security then? Or on the flip side, if my continuance in the faith is actually a gift of my salvation, then why should I feel like there's any danger? And yet, this is the tension that Scripture gives us. You see both aspects, the danger and the safety. And Jesus said, Not everyone who calls me Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. But this same Jesus also said, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So we have to come to terms with the fact that true Christians are secure in their salvation, but that if we ever start to treat our salvation as something light, then we are in very real danger of drifting away and proving that we never really experienced that salvation. There's some complexity to these thoughts, and and so God gave us the book of Hebrews in part to help us grasp this. And our passage this morning is going to be the first of five warning passages in the book of Hebrews. Now, why would an author spend so much time warning people who are already Christians? Why should you, even if you're certain that you're a Christian, take these warnings to heart? It's because heeding God's warnings is how true Christians persevere in the faith. And giving those warnings is how God keeps the faithful safe. Think about it this way. If I'm sitting in my front yard... And then my son comes, and he wants to, he's playing in the front yard there. And, of course, I'm going to warn him, hey, if you go in the street, you could get hit by a car and die. And because he loves me, he's going to heed that warning. But even if my son is foolish, here's something I know. He's not going in the street. Because I'm not taking my eyes off of him, and I can run faster than him, and I can grab him if he gets too close to the street. So he's totally secure. But that doesn't mean, though, that the warning is pointless for him. It could be the very means by which he stays away from the street. And to add some further complexity, if, like, let's imagine that some neighbor kids come over who aren't my kids. And they would hear my warnings as well, but they may just think I'm crazy, stern, old-fashioned guy, and they may just run into the street for fun. And if they do, if my eyes aren't fixed on them, there's no guarantee that I'll run and grab them, even though they were playing in my yard. So these analogies are limited, obviously. 
But it begs the question, are you the safe child or are you just playing in the children's yard? Either way, you'd better heed the warnings. Warnings were necessary for the first recipients of the book of Hebrews because they were under persecution and they, uh, by following Jesus, they risked losing their livelihoods. They risked public humiliation, the plundering of their property, being put in prison. In the years to come, there, there'd even be people put to death. And this is why they were tempted to drift back to a safer and less demanding form of piety. That was their drift. But what about us in America? People in America, we often drift actually because we're too comfortable or because we don't like a God who would ask us to trust him through suffering and loss. We drift because we have too many good things, and then we, we make the good things into ultimate things, and then the ultimate things are just taken for granted and compromised. We drift because it's uncomfortable continuing to hold forth a worldview that is so contrary to the popular messages that we hear every day. And we drift because we're slothful and we're complacent, and we'd rather live as if we had already arrived at the destination port. But so what? So I don't really consider the contents of the faith for a day, or five days, or most days. Why is that so bad? The danger of drift is spelled out for us at the beginning of verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? This is a rhetorical question. The answer is, we will not escape if we neglect such a great salvation. It's like letting your boat drift down the Niagara River. Now, the judgment of God is not a popular topic, especially since it's the habit of criminals everywhere to be shocked and appalled at the idea that anything bad should ever happen to them. But we can't rely on our own view of ourselves to decide whether we're criminals or not. We need to look outside of ourselves to the law, even if it seems like no one else is obeying it either. And when we do, when we look at God's law, we see that we, we don't live in a cosmic free-for-all. We live in a benevolent monarchy. And the one on the throne is in the business of making all things new. So we can either get on board with that program or we'll find ourselves cast out to torment in the end. The good news, though, is that while we've all missed the mark, a great salvation has been revealed. Jesus himself made purification for sins in a final way that sets us free. If we take refuge in him, we will be blessed forever. But outside of that refuge, there is simply no other source of salvation. How do we know this? How can we have confidence that we have a reliable message? How can we have confidence that there will be horrific consequences if we ignore it? Well, the evidence of the danger comes in two parts. Um, we can think of it according to the two ages that were mentioned in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Let's look at the message given during each of those ages and ask, how was it proven to be reliable? How do we know that the danger of ignoring it is real? And first, we can think about how long ago God spoke at many times and in many ways. And this is talking about the first covenant, the contents of your Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. And verse 2 calls this the message declared by angels, probably highlighting especially the Torah. And um, let's stop and think. How did the revelation that was given to Moses prove to be reliable? Well, if you think back to that covenant, to those words given to the ancient Israelites, God committed to bring them into the land. 
And this is exactly what happened with the next generation, with the miraculous conquest over a number of cities and their powerful kings led by Joshua. God also laid out plans for the tabernacle and the Levitical priesthood, and these would persist along with the construction of the temple for over 1,500 years. God promised in those words to set his name somewhere specific in the land, and this happened when David made Jerusalem his capital, and that city is associated with the name of Yahweh even to this day. And God laid out covenant blessings that would accompany his faithful people. And when they kept his laws, when they worshiped him alone, when they loved justice and mercy and cared for widows and orphans and sojourners, then for centuries they did multiply and thrive just as Deuteronomy said they would. They were renowned among the nations. They had relief from their enemies. When you read parts of the Old Testament, life in Israel under faithful prophets and godly kings, it was a little bit like a new Eden. It was a, a land flowing with milk and honey where God's will was accomplished on earth as in heaven. So the message that established that people was certainly reliable. But so were the covenant curses for disobedience that you can read about in Deuteronomy chapter 28. In the later centuries of the kingdoms of Israel and Judah, when the people abandoned all that God had so clearly revealed to them, then came the just retribution for their unfaithfulness. Drought, famine, disease, domestic crime and treachery, foreign invasion, exile. And throughout the time of the prophets, there, there can be no doubt that this word was reliable and that neglecting it would lead to one's own destruction. Whether you think of the ground swallowing up Korah and his rebellion, or the swift end that came to the houses of Eli and Saul, or um, you think about at the time of the exile, Nebuchadnezzar came and the, took the Davidic heir, King Zedekiah, and killed his two sons right in front of him and then put out his eyes so that that was the last thing he saw. So across the centuries, God's word and his warning of what would happen if there was drift, that warning was true, and God was true to his word. But we no longer live in the age of the prophets. Uh, as chapter 1 began, in these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Now, many people tend to have the thought that, well, thank God I don't live in those former times when God was so wrathful, and now I live in the time of Jesus when God is kind. And if that's what you're thinking, I, I want to plead with you, please don't think that way. It's true, the times have changed. It's true, the kindness of God has been more fully displayed in God's loving provision of salvation in Christ. But the Father has always been full of kindness, patience, and grace towards sinners. He is also just. And Jesus shares all of his qualities. Jesus has always been actively one with the Father, participating also in the works of judgment. So it's simply not true that now, in the age of the Son, there's less danger. There's no danger in neglecting his message. Actually, we're meant to see that there's even more danger now that Christ has come. The argument in this section is from lesser to greater. We use logic like that all the time, lesser to greater. Like, um, oh, if you think this car is nice, just wait till you see the new model. Or if you think lunch was delicious, wait till you see what we're having for dinner. Or um, like a negative example, uh, if you soldiers think you're work too hard now, just wait till the colonel gets back to the base, right? Reasoning from lesser to greater. Similarly, 
If the message of the first covenant proved reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how much more if we neglect the even greater speech of God's own Son? Drifting from what we've heard from him isn't a lighter thing than ignoring the prophetic oracles of old. It's a much more serious thing. And we have plenty of evidence that this word of warning will also prove reliable. First verse 3 reminds us that this message was declared at first by the Lord. So we have the very words of Jesus corroborated by four first century witnesses. And this great salvation was declared by the very son whom we read about in chapter 1. He perfectly fulfilled the words spoken for centuries and millennia earlier, and he spoke in a way that was authoritative and that has captivated every generation since then. And he spoke of this great salvation in such a way that made it clear, you're either all in or you're all out. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And for those who reject the very words of Jesus, he himself prophesied horrific things. He denounced the cities that did not repent, and he said, You will be brought down to Hades, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained till this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Now, if these words that we read in our Gospels if these weren't from God incarnate, then how do you explain the way that his words keep changing lives, keep changing history? He was either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. There's actually no room for him to have been just a good teacher because then he'd be a good teacher who lies. Um, that's not very good. So only the last option, Lord, explains why his immediate followers were willing to sacrifice their very lives in order to spread these words across the hostile empire and beyond. So the danger in neglecting God's speech in Jesus is heightened because the message of salvation was declared by the Lord himself in history for all the world to hear and to obey. Next, we read that the final message was also attested to us by those who heard, meaning the apostles and the other first-generation witnesses who heard directly from the Lord Jesus. In addition to the Gospels, we've got three letters from John, two from Peter, one from James, one from Jude, 13 from Paul, all attesting to the life, death, resurrection, and implications of Jesus. Now, it's clear that the author of Hebrews was not an apostle himself, but he was a friend of the apostles and based his ministry directly on their testimony. And again, if, if their attestation wasn't true, how would these first witnesses, not only the 12, but we, we read in 1 Corinthians that over 500 people were firsthand witnesses of the resurrection. How would their testimony all agree so that in a matter of only decades, a single consistent and shocking message had permeated the Greco-Roman Empire. We have to take this attestation seriously. And our next piece of evidence for the reliability of what we have heard and the danger of drifting from it comes from the fact that God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles. 
If you open the book of Acts in your New Testament, you can read a historical account of the first Christians and how God did confirm their words through all sorts of miracles, dreams and visions, healings, miraculous uh, transportation, miraculous speech in new languages, angels freeing them from prison, recovering from deadly snake bite. Now, of course, our society doesn't think that things like that really happen. Um, most societies across history and even across the globe today, however, do very much have room for supernatural occurrences. Um, we're, you know, our, our culture is very, we think we're quite brilliant with our materialistic bias, but then eventually we run into things that we can't explain. Um, so I want you to know it's not ridiculous at all to see these things and know that this is firm evidence of the truthfulness of God's word. Now, God doesn't ever promise signs and miracles. He wants us to believe his word. The signs and miracles are pointing to his word. And his word has been available here for centuries. It's been available, it's been widely disseminated, and it's been largely dismissed. But if you look to the corners of the world where the word of God is being experienced for the very first time, you'll see that it's often accompanied by signs and wonders to attest to its reliability. I just heard a recorded testimony this week. A Saudi woman near Medina prayed, Jesus, if you are who they say you are, cause my crippled mother to walk again. That very instant, she looked across the house. Her mother stood upright out of the wheelchair and started moving across the room. And seven family members and friends came to faith that day along with that woman. So miracles like this, whether in the book of Acts or on the frontiers of global missions today, they serve the purpose of bearing witness to the veracity of God's final message in the finished work of Jesus. So they shouldn't make us, this shouldn't make us chase the wonders themselves and say, oh, I, I sure wish God would do something like that in our context. That's not the point. The, the point is, no, look to the message about which those signs and wonders are bearing witness. They should make us pay much closer attention to what we have heard. And lastly, we can see that the testimony is true and the danger is real because we can see gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. If you look at a healthy church and you see how God equips and coordinates his people in a way that displays his power and serves one another, the beauty and the strength of that community it really, it outshines any mere club or organization or family elsewhere in the world. It's amazing. So we look at all these factors together, the proven reality of God's word to ancient Israel and the judgments that were experienced by them. We look at the fact that the message of salvation in Christ was declared by the Lord himself, and it was attested by consistent and thoughtful witnesses and that it was supported by signs and wonders and is confirmed by the very presence of the Holy Spirit in our midst. And all these factors together should warn us and should make us horrified at the thought of drifting away from such a great salvation. If we neglect what has been revealed, then we will not escape. We won't escape from the deceitfulness of sin. We won't escape from the hardening of our hearts. We won't escape from the eventual judgment of a just God. One commentator writes that Christians in the West enjoy freedom, safety, and tolerance, 
Yet still some may lose interest in God's last best word spoken in his son. Their drift towards spiritual shipwreck may not start with storms of life-shaking crisis. Instead, there are subtle rip currents. Career advancement and financial security. Entertainment and recreation. Reputation and social acceptance. These all loosen the line, linking them to the sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. And such drift spells eternal ruin. So that's the grave danger. That's something that all of us must take to heart. If we see this warning rightly, it's, it's like suddenly realizing you've been playing right near the edge of a cliff. Right? You just don't say, oh, okay, I'll move back a little. No, you're, you jump back and your heart is racing and you, you can't really do much for a few minutes as you take it in. So what's the remedy for this danger? How should we respond? The main point of this passage is actually pretty simple. It says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. God has spoken to us by his son, and we must pay much closer attention to that message. Now, some of you come from a background where the church officials were the ones who studied the Bible, and then they just kind of gave you the cliff notes, like, well, what do I really need to know? Well, that's not how we believe God intends for his holy word to be used. So my job is to equip you so that you can be first-handers with all that has been revealed. I don't want to just give you fish for a day. I want to teach you how to fish. Uh, you could think of it like I'm a, I'm a guide to a treasure vault, okay? I'm helping you to see all the riches that you will want to become more acquainted with on your own. But the end result needs to be that you are owning these words for yourself. You are getting your own hands into each drawer and chest of treasure. Even if you're confused at first about like, huh, what is this? Why is it so priceless? Uh, you're, even if you need help knowing exactly how to, to open the chest or whatever it is. Now, others of you come from a background where, yeah, of, of course, the Bible is super important, but it doesn't really feel essential for life every day because, you know, we've got the Holy Spirit to tell us everything we need. And this is good that we want so deeply to be led moment by moment by our God who dwells within each of us in Christ. But it's a fundamental misunderstanding of categories if we in any way pit the Bible and the Holy Spirit against each other. They're not in competition. The Holy Spirit wrote this book. He didn't just write it so that we could learn some things and then move on. No, he keeps speaking to us through this book. And that's why the, the book of Hebrews calls the Bible living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And the author of Hebrews, when he's quoting from the Old Testament, there's a couple of times when he says, he introduces that quote by saying, as the Holy Spirit says, or the Holy Spirit bears witness to us. So you can notice the present tense there. He is still speaking to us through these words. The Bible is quite simply the Holy Spirit's favorite tool for communicating with the people of God. So if you are someone who is constantly discerning a certain leading from God, I would trust those impulses more or less dependent on how much you've been meditating on this book lately. If we drift from this, then God's speech can quickly be replaced with self-speech. 
Notice also that the author of Hebrews doesn't say, therefore, you must pay much closer attention. No. He says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention. He doesn't exempt himself from the need to be warned, and neither can I feel exempt from this danger myself just because I happen to be one who's helping to deliver the warning. Paying much closer attention doesn't just mean learn more about the Bible. There are plenty of people who know the Bible inside and out, but they're not obeying these verses. There are plenty of pastors and priests and Bible scholars who will be condemned in the end because the message they knew backward and forward never transformed them. It was just info to them, or it was, it was a means to an end other than God himself. So there's knowing the facts about the, the message of salvation, and then there's actually internalizing and actually by grace living out God's message of salvation. So I want to be clear that this passage, it doesn't tell us to just be sure to have more exposure to the words of the message. It's saying, pay attention and keep being changed by the message. The raw material of the word of God is what he uses to speak, but truly hearing that speech doesn't depend mainly upon our intellectual mastery. It depends upon our heart attitude. Do we receive the word of God eagerly, humbly, with thanksgiving, If so, then that's way better than having a a PhD in Hebrew or theology. Do you feel clueless a lot when you read the Bible? If so, keep at it. Because in the Bible, we are promised that the testimony of the Lord makes wise those who are simple. You feel confident a lot when you study the Bible. Be afraid, because we're promised that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Matthew eleven twenty five 25 captures this dynamic well when Jesus declares, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and have revealed them to little children. Okay, so we need to pay much closer attention to God's word to us in Christ. Where do we start? First, I want to encourage you to press into the book of Hebrews. Ask questions, dig deeper, come to Sunday mornings eager to see more. Review the the passage from the previous week. Um, When you have a five-minute break during the week, preview the passage that's ahead. As you drive or ride a train, you can even try to memorize the first four verses. Because the author of Hebrews, he holds up Jesus for us just to marvel at in all of his incomparability. So take advantage of that. Let's make the most of this series together and let's internalize this message. Now, maybe some of you need to overcome some frustration or intimidation that you may feel in regard to the Bible. And if that's you, I want to recommend two resources. Uh, First, check out this book. It's called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth um, by Gordon Fee and and Douglas Stewart. So that's that's a really helpful volume if you're just looking for a, a little help to get started in your Bible study. It's a practical guide to all the books of the Bible. It gives you some tips on you know, how best to understand what they are and what they're trying to accomplish and how to read them. Um, so I'd recommend that book to anyone, really. A second book, ladies, you should definitely read this book, Women of the Word by Jen Wilkin. And in fact, the women of our church in August are going to do sort of a book club on this book. Um, 
So stay tuned for an announcement on that next week from Sarah. It's, a, it's very readable. It doesn't assume any background knowledge of the Bible. And I think you'll be blessed by your time in that together. But paying much closer attention to what we have heard, it ultimately comes down not to a series of practical steps. It comes down to the right heart attitude. Isaiah 66.2, God says, This is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. So these verses we've looked at today, they involve some fear. Oh, it's pastor just trying to make me afraid a little bit the author of hebrews isn't afraid to make us afraid but throughout the book you'll see that fear when rightly felt quickly gives way to hope when we're afraid of drifting and we refocus on the great salvation that has been revealed then any fear quickly gives way to confidence and hope because we see clearly his promises again and we know that they are true for anyone who will take refuge in him. So let's talk to God now and express our desire to do just that. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we, we praise you that, um, that we can draw near to you through Jesus Christ. We praise you that there is blessing for any who will cling to you. We don't have to drift. We don't have to be confused and, and battered by waves and storms. We can stay close to the cross. We can make it to the safe haven. So we ask for greater grace to do that, greater grace to pay much more closer attention to what we have heard. Lord, fix our minds and our hearts on these truths, these truths that run so counter to a lot of times to what we're told in so many messages every day. Let these words be more real to us than the things that we see and hear and taste and smell. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.